0: Well, I uh, am, am excited to be back with you all, um, but not just to be back with you, but to be back in our study of 1 Corinthians. So it feels like it's been a long time, but um, go ahead and, and, and grab your Bibles if you have them and uh, make your way back to 1 Corinthians. Anybody remember what chapter we're in? <laughs> Stephanie's like, nope, not at all. Anybody? Five? Five. You got it. So, this evening we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, a, a passage that really surfaces for us. It's not an easy subject to dive right back into. So. Um, and, and not only that, sort of I, I decided that just to get back into it, we're not even going to ease back into it. Well, so, thanks for taking so long, Ben. I was going to cover the entire chapter. Yeah. You have little faith. Uh, I have very little faith right now, too. So I'm going to talk really quickly, but believe it or not, that is our goal, is to cover 1 through 13. Yes, I know. Uh, And that difficult topic that surfaces in our passage tonight is, anybody know what that is? Anybody ever study 1 Corinthians 5? sexual (laughs) Sexual immorality is like the header. And well, actually, though that does come up in here, it's not what I'm thinking of. It's the uncomfortable topic of church discipline. Sexual immorality of which is the occasion for that in this letter. And so we come face to face with this challenging doctrine uh, this difficult subject, I think, of church discipline. Now, how many of you—this is the first church you've been in that actually practices church discipline—and has how many of you have never seen it actually performed publicly in a service? Never? not Really? Okay. Well, all all of that to say, it's it's not it's not a common practice, though it should be, right? And we'll see tonight why it's hard and why it's difficult. But it is in our Bibles. Not now. Not, I I don't mean to say that you can't look up in your concordance the two words church discipline and find them together. But what I mean, and what I think the scriptures mean when we come to talk about this particular teaching, is simply how God's people deal with sin in their midst. That's all we're talking about. At at its core, fundamentally and essentially, church discipline, I I don't want you to think when I say that of, you know, formal announcements. I don't want you to think of even, uh, you know, codified steps or just really difficult, awkward situations that only elders have to deal with. okay. I want us all to walk away from this evening realizing that church discipline, listen, is the responsibility of you as the church, as a member of the body of Christ. Because, listen, God is very concerned about sin. And that is why we need to study this. So we're going to we're gonna have to clarify and define this biblically um, we 're going to answer some I think common misconceptions and questions through this particular chapter, but specifically in context, you think how, how do we get here in this letter well paul um, is 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 I believe clearly starting a new section from where we 've been in chapters one through four he 's moving on in a sense in this letter now here to. Uh, a new and different problem that he's heard about or, or caught wind of, so to speak, in the Corinthian church, and that is, as uh, I think Emily said, the, uh, the, the, the toleration of this particular sin of sexual immorality in their midst, and that's how this subject arises here um, You know, there, there, is this con, there is this lie, I would say. Uh, in, there's this lie that comes straight from the pits of hell circulating our culture today that, that I would say even it has made its way into the church in some places, and it goes something like this. What I do with my life is my business. My, uh, maybe you've heard it put this way, my My personal sin and private lifestyle shouldn't matter to anyone. It shouldn't affect anyone but me. And the reality is, even as our text tonight demonstrates, the New Testament doesn't portray the Christian life this way. Our moral choices, listen, Christian, your moral choices the moral choices of those brothers and sisters sitting next to you here tonight even are not so isolated as you might think. And so we find out in passages like this one um, that our sins do have an impact on others around us and as members of one another in the body of Christ. Therefore, we have a corporate responsibility for sin, to help one another, to correct one another, to call each other to repentance. And that responsibility is most pointedly demonstrated in the New Testament teaching and practice of church discipline. So we need to talk about this. We need to talk about this. By the way, if you remember last time uh, we ended chapter 4, um, just again, setting up the context here for how, how we even, how Paul even gets to this subject, uh, gets to talking about church discipline. You remember last time, we ended chapter 4 by noting three essential elements of discipleship that Paul exemplifies in his dealing with the Corinthians. You remember? Instruction, uh, imitation, and then intervention, you know, those are three essential elements that we, we, we said are, are, are all part of discipleship. And, and, and it's in this last one, intervention, that Paul now gets here and he camps out on a bit more in our text. That, that, that discipleship often involves intervention and con- confrontation of sin. And that's, and he now begins to demonstrate for that to us in his writing to the Corinthians, Um, and we did learn from his his example. Uh, So, Christian, tonight I just want you to even even just consider this, if if anything else, when sin rears its head in the church. you, You know, as a member of the body of Christ, you have. A responsibility and role. You are not to ignore; you're to intervene. Um, that's what healthy Christians do. That's what healthy churches do. And that's all that we're talking about when we talk about church discipline, how God's people deal with sin corporately. So, um, here's how we're going to go about our study tonight. We're going to answer four questions from this chapter about church discipline. So probably not going to touch on everything in super detail, but we're going to try to at least answer, walk through these text, this text, these verses, and answer four questions. I'll give them to you up front if you want to just write them down. When do we do church discipline? How do we do church discipline? Why do we do church discipline? And who do we do church discipline for? Okay, so when, how, why, and who. All right? So let's begin. It's, let's, let's answer the first question. When do we tr- do church discipline? In other words, Paul begins here um, by giving us the situation that necessitates this practice. Notice that the answer comes to us in verse 1. Paul describes the situation there in Corinth specifically that prompted him to write these verses. He says this, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind that does not even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Now, this is the situation, and so what do we learn about When we need to practice this, when is church discipline necessary? Well, first, notice here in verse one, uh, we practice church discipline when sin becomes known and obvious in the body of Christ. When sin becomes known and obvious, now notice in these first few words, it is actually reported. Um. Uh, the word here actually can, can mean something that has been confirmed in reality. This is not potential. This is not a rumor. Paul, yes, though he's heard it. The point here is, right, it's not some, it's not fake news, Okay he he's he, it has been confirmed it has been reported to him and and actually the word here is different than the one used back in chapter 1 where Chloe's people you remember uh where he had heard from Chloe's people of the divisions where he'd been informed by Chloe's people deliberately here it, it's it's actually this it's not, it's not so specific. It's, it almost has this idea where it is so well known that news of it was known and heard by all, and it just happened to reach Paul's ear. That's how prevalent, confirmed, and well known and public this sin was. And that's helpful even, even right out of the gate, right? So to help us even think about when do we practice church discipline? You don't Get into that mode that Paul's in here right now on a hunch, okay right? you don't you don't you don't begin to confront people on motives and things that you aren't entirely certain about, and you just have this inkling no, uh, as I think we'll see in coming weeks because I think it will be helpful to even camp out on this particular subject and go to some other texts about it. Um, we practice church discipline only when sin has been confirmed, when it becomes known and obvious and observed. Okay? So that's um, f- first, the first situation. And notice here, specifically, the uh, at least in the Corinthian church, the the sin being exposed and heard of here is that Sin of immorality, sexual immorality. So really the word here is "pornia," which, you know, if you were here on Sunday uh, in God's providence, right? Carrie just in 1 Thessalonians 4 talked about this. So I don't have to elaborate much on it, but it's just the broadest term in the New Testament from which we actually get our term pornography. But it includes any and all kinds of illicit sexual activity outside of the biblical marriage between one woman and one man. And specifically, if you notice at the end of verse 1, here, Paul, even, Paul also specifies, though, the specific kind of sexual immorality that's being committed there in Corinth. And we find out that it's an incestuous relationship, likely between, because of the language, a man... Uh, who's a part of that church, and his stepmother, not his biological mom. That's a different word, but uh, Paul uses this father's wife to likely indicate that this is um, the wife of this man's dad who wasn't his biological mom. Does that make sense? Um, But even that kind of a relationship is considered incestuous and condemned in the Old Testament. So if you're taking notes Uh, You could just write down Leviticus 18, verse 8, Leviticus 20, verse 11, Deuteronomy 22, verse 30. It was very clear biblically that this was prohibited, okay? So that's the specific kind of sin that was being reported or actually being heard and known publicly. But notice secondly here, uh, still in that first Answering that first question, when do we practice church discipline? Well, when it's known and confirmed and obvious, that sin. But also, when that sin, it isn't just any sin out there committed by any person. Notice the phrase here, it was among you. And we'll talk about this in a a moment when we get to the last paragraph here, but Church discipline is done for those in the church. Okay, so so when sin occurs and becomes obvious in the church, okay, that's among God's people. So this is sin committed by professing Christians. That's the situation. That's part of the answer. But third... Not only is this obvious sin committed by those in the church, notice also we can observe here that we practice church discipline when sin is ongoing and unrepentant. Uh, The language here is someone has present tense, has presently his father's wife. Now the same verb to have in, is used by Jesus in John chapter four verse eighteen, who when he's referring to anybody know what passage John four, what's the John four passage? Woman at, well. woman at the well, right the Samaritan woman at the well who Jesus says, "Hey, you've had this many husbands and the and the man you have now, right are having it's the same idea here implying you're, you're, in a, you're in an ongoing sexual relationship with him is not your husband. And so I believe Paul's using it the same way here. This is an ongoing relationship in indicating an unrepentant state of this sin. And so MacArthur writes, It was not a one-time or short-term affair, but was continuous and open. That's the situation in Corinth here. But nas- la- lastly, notice uh, this: this this sin was also tarnishing the reputation of Christ. Do you notice that he says specifically, even here, it, it was of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Now that is uh, shameful, isn't it? The description of this. Is intended to show by Paul just how blind um, th- these these Corinthians were I mean even uh, when you do some digging, I mean even the pagan Roman culture at that time frowned upon this sin of incest and thought it as a perversion. We learned from Cicero that there were Roman laws even written against uh, this kind of thing, and so it is a great shame and a Um, travesty to the reputation of Christ when God's people, think about this, because of sin, um, they, in one sense, they drag Christ's name through the mud. And so one commentator said this, God's people, Look, are to be a light to the nations, not the other way around, for the sake of God's reputation uh, to facilitate evangelism. But the Corinthians were not that. This sin was public. It was so grotesque. It was serious to this degree. And so this passage helps us um, to answer that question, when, when, do, when do we practice then as the church, church discipline? Um, church discipline is necessary when unrepentant sin inside the church becomes known and obvious to all and tarnishes the reputation of Christ. That's, that's what we gather from verse 1. I'll read that again. Church discipline is necessary when unrepentant sin inside the church becomes known and obvious to all and is tarnishing the reputation of Christ. Listen, guys, you you have a responsibility. If you know of sin being committed by a brother or sister who professes Christ, and it fits all of these sort of categories and descriptions, then you cannot turn a blind eye. Love requires that you do something, right? And we'll talk about here in the future what that something looks like, but this passage doesn't get into the weeds on that, which, which is why I do want to, um, I do think it's going to be helpful in the coming weeks to go to like a Matthew 18 and a Galatians 6 to even um, help us also know how we would go about doing that. You know. And so this passage only does so much of that, as we'll see here. So, so that when, when, do, when do we do church discipline? That's when. That's the situation. When unrepented sin inside the church becomes known and obvious to all. And is tarnishing the reputation of Christ. Okay, second question, how? Okay, now, how do we do it? Um, now, <clears throat> we see this in verses 2 through 5. Now, uh, let me just preface this particular section and my answers to this question by s- saying, Paul does not give detailed steps here for us, as we'll see in other passages but there are three parts to his answer of this question, how? And the first has to do with the attitude with which the church discipline is to be carried out. Okay, the attitude towards that sin. The, the second has to do with the, the, the overall action that the church is to take. Again, not in detail, but in general. And then the third is going to give us the authority upon which the church is to do this. And so that's what I mean by how, okay? Um, So let's look at first the attitude with which the church discipline is to be carried out. And we learn this negatively first in the first part of verse 2, as Paul points out to us here the failure of the Corinthians' response to this sin. Notice what he says here. That was the situation, verse 1, and then he jumps right in and says, look, and you've become arrogant and have not mourned instead. I mean, it's, it's almost as though what's even more shocking to the Apostle Paul than the grotesque sin of incest itself is the way in which the Corinthians failed to actually deal with it. They failed miserably. They failed to respond appropriately to this sin. And notice how he puts this failure. It's not just that you didn't do anything about it. He actually says, he gives us divine insight into the attitudes behind two different responses to the sin. He says, you became arrogant and didn't mourn instead. You know what that tells me? Those two are opposite responses, opposite attitudes. And so their failure to deal with sin was considered by Paul an attitude of arrogance. Isn't that interesting? Just think about that for a second. I think, about, think about just when I talk about church discipline and I talk about calling out sin in the congregation... I guarantee you, you take that idea out into the culture and you take that idea of judging sin in the congregation, right? And you even go into some churches and what what is the perspective on that? George. Yeah, up. you're so proud. You're so condescending. You're so self-righteous. And what's so fascinating here is that that Paul says, actually, it's the exact opposite. When you, when you do nothing, when you tolerate sin in the midst of God's people, you're arrogant, you're proud, you're puffed up. That, what's the opposite of that? That pride that makes us calloused and indifferent and insensitive and even flippant with the sin of others, well, the opposite attitude is humility, of course, which is here, notice, marked by grief over that sin. Listen, humble Christians grieve when sin occurs. Do you mourn when you see sin? Of course, in yourself, first and foremost, but then also sin in others. What is your response when you see a brother or sister stumble and dishonor Christ? Is it ha, better than you? Or is it, oh, I'm so grieved. Humility is the attitude from which we are to practice church discipline. That's how, Paul says. Um, by the way... That's always been the case in, uh, in, in, in Scripture. Uh, you can write down again if you're taking notes. In the Old Testament, Ezra chapter 10, Ezra was an example of this, as well as many others, Amos and Daniel, men of God who um, really grieved over the nation's sin, mourning, Ezra 10, 6, over the unfaithfulness of God's people. Can you think of any other passages that speak of mourning over sin? Yeah, Matthew 5, verse 6, uh, or verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'll give you another one, James chapter 4, verse 9. James calls the arrogant man who uh, has a friendship with the world and is at enmity with God, right? He In that context, he, he tells... He tells that person to be miserable. (laughs) How's that for a command? Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. What, What is James saying there? He's just saying, humble yourself in that way. Don't flippantly treat your life of sin. And that is the same thing that Paul calls the Corinthians to here. He calls them out and their failure to do that. And it, and it comes back to this attitude for them. It was pride instead of humility. It was laughter instead of mourning. So what do we, what do we know from that? Well, h- how should we exercise church discipline? Well, first, we, know, we, we, we learn here that the attitude in, with which we approach discipline in the church is not, ha-ha, gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> Right, It's not condescending. It's, man, I'm so grieved because I love you. And I mourn over the consequence that you might face, the dishonor you've brought to Christ. And it doesn't just affect you. That's the attitude. But notice this attitude then leads to action. So um, notice what church discipline does. How are we to go about practicing church discipline. It's with this attitude of humility, but also this action of excommunication. And secondly, the subsequent action that is to be taken when church discipline is practiced so that, notice that second part of verse two, or in other words, even as a result of the proper attitude, we could say, flowing from this mourning and grief, here's what we do. The one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. That's the simplest way to put this idea of separation from that sin. And, 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 and if necessary, separation then from the sinner. Because think about it, if the sinner is digging in their heels and unrepentant and continuing in that sin, the only way to separate from the sin is to separate from the sinner in hopes that the sin would be separated from the sinner, right? And so that is the basic response that Paul calls them to here. That sinner is to be kicked out, excommunicated, disfellowshipped, however you want to put it. There's to be a distinction, a clear-cut separation from that corruption. No longer to be uh, that person is no longer to be treated or seen or identified as a part of the covenant community of believers. That—that's really what that means, right? But then notice second. Uh, no, notice how else, how else Paul describes this act of excommunication. Uh, look, look at uh, the verb in verse three. And then the and then verse um, and the verb in verse five. Let me point them out to you. He describes this um, removal as uh, an act of judgment and delivering over to Satan. Look at verse three. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. We'll talk about what all that present, and absent language means here in a minute. But skip down to verse 5. To deliver such a one to Satan. So Paul says, I've judged him in order t- and, and to deliver him over to Satan. Okay? So maybe if you're reading the NASB, uh, the beginning of verse 5, you have italics, I have decided. Um, it's actually, that's not in the original text. It really... It literally just is to deliver. I think you can attach that to what Paul has judged. Okay. He says, I've judged the man to deliver him over to Satan. And so think about that. Those three ideas, that's basically what excommunication and church discipline does. It kicks the guy, it kicks the sinner out of the church. And, it's a form of judgment and it, it hands that person over to the influence of Satan. And that's scary, isn't it? Let's think about that for a moment. For one, you know, you, you hear people, you know, if a Christian ever comes to you and says, hey man, don't judge me, you can take them to this passage and say, well, Paul judged believers. There is a sense in which believers are to be judged, that we actually have a responsibility. God is actually calling me out of love for the glory of Christ if you're sinning to judge. And that looks like practically disfellowshipping with the person, but then spiritually, think about the privilege that that person loses. That's really what this idea of being delivered over to Satan uh, describes. Now, now, now let me. Doesn't that put a whole new light for you guys? Think about this on the privilege and the grace and the benefit of being in the body of Christ. If it's if Paul considers being kicked out of the church as being delivered over to Satan, I mean, who wants that? <laughs> um, nobody. And yet, man, how many how many Christians, so called Christians. Choose that for themselves, right? And never join a church. Isn't that interesting? I just find that interesting. But that is how Paul thinks of being removed from the grace gift of God's church. So that, that's, that's the action that's being required in church discipline. Okay? And notice then, lastly, in this section, still, still answering the question, how? We've seen the attitude. We've seen the action. Notice now the authority <coughs> of with which church discipline is to be practiced. Still answering the question how, but now looking at it from this angle of with what authority? I mean, don't, don't, you, don't, don't you have sometimes, you know, people will say, well, what with what authority do you say that? With what authority do you do that? I mean, that's significant, right? To kick someone out, right? Is it personal authority of the leaders? Uh, no, notice what notice what Paul Paul does here. We'll we'll start in verse 3 here again, just to pick up the language that he uses. For I on my part, though absent in the body and present in spirit, have already judged him who so committed this as though I were present. Now notice in the middle of verse 4, he has also that language, and I with you in spirit. What is Paul referring to here? First of all, I would say It is with apostolic authority that we practice church discipline. It is with apostolic authority. Paul, that's all he means here, I think. He's just highlighting the fact. I actually think he's contrasting sort of this idea that, hey, you guys are there and he's in your midst and you don't even see it. Or Paul saying, hey, I'm not even there. And I can put my stamp of approval on this course of action because it is so absolutely clear. This, all this language of being absent in the body, but present in spirit, I think is just, you know, some people take this in a really mystical way. I don't take it that way. I just think this is just Paul's way of putting his apostolic stamp of approval on that course of action and calling them to agree with him to kick this guy out because it's that clear. So on what authority? On apostolic authority, commended by the Apostle Paul, taught in Scripture to us, even recorded in Scripture here for us. So second, not only with apostolic authority, but let's one-up that with God's authority. Notice, he says in verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus. Um. And then, at the end of verse four, with the power of our Lord Jesus, what think about that this is and this is not new, right? as we'll see in Matthew eighteen, when we go to Matthew eighteen to study uh, church discipline even more there, you know it's it's that it's that famously misquoted passage, right? Where two or three are gathered, what does it say? in my name, right, there I am in their midst, right so Uh, that's a church discipline passage. (laughs) And it's the same idea here. Paul is saying, in the name of our Lord Jesus and with the power of our Lord Jesus, it's all of that to say the presence and the power of Christ symbolizes it is His authority that the church stands on to practice this. Um, no higher court of appeals. When this process is walked through biblically, we can say we have the authority of, the delegated authority of Christ to carry it out. It is His will. Right? What, what do you mean when you say, hey, I, you know how we close prayers all the time? In Jesus' name. What does that What does that mean? What's that typically... Do you guys know what that means? Or do you just say it? What does that mean, George? Uh, well, It goes back to the idea that without Him, we wouldn't be able to pray to God in the first place. True. True. What does it, what does it mean to pray in His name? Like to, According to His will. According to His will. Think about that. That's exactly what Paul is saying here as well. It is according to God's will, with God's authority that church discipline is to be enacted on this person if it's this clear. So it's not personal, right? Like any time, I think think we've all, maybe this is where um, unfortunately the church has gone wrong at times, right? You have men in the leadership who have practiced church discipline unbiblically for personal reasons to enact their own will uh, with their own, quote-unquote, human authority. Paul says, no, that's a distortion of this practice. When it's done biblically for the right reasons, in this right way, it has the stamp of God upon it. the promise of Christ's presence is the promise of his power and authority behind the act. Um, but then last note, notice still under the authority here, Paul specifies that this is to be done. Notice when you are assembled. Um, what does that tell us? It tells us there is a kind of authority in the um, in a corporate act, isn't there? And when God's people gather um, and they all agree with his word and his will and act accordingly in his name, then you cannot get any more authoritative than that. This is why I tremble, guys, too. I tremble at people who just flippantly disregard being put in their church discipline. If the biblical process has been followed, we're going to see um, in coming weeks how what the church then decides in that moment and declares is what heaven has already done. I mean, that's sobering, isn't it? You know, people say, well, you know, what you say doesn't determine where my heart is, right? That's, you hear that a lot. And the, the reality is if the biblical process has been followed and it gets to this point, man. That person is self-deceived in thinking that he belongs to Christ if the church is saying, actually, you're not acting like it. So that's sobering. So that's the, the authority that we're to practice church discipline with. So, so, again, I'll give you a summary statement, a summary sentence then to, in answer to this question, how do we practice church discipline? We practice church discipline then in humility by corporately agreeing to remove the sinner on the basis of Christ's authority. That captures it in one sense. That's how. So we'll look at the more practical hows uh, in weeks to come in terms of steps once we will take a break again uh, and step out of this into Matthew 18 and other places. So. We answered, we've answered when, we've answered how. Two more, quick, two more quick questions. Why? Why do church discipline? Why do church discipline? Man, it's so hard. Why go through that trouble? Well, there's two real main reasons given to us here. Um, and, and the first is simply this, to rescue the soul of the sinner it's for his good it's for the good of the one who's being disciplined it's restorative it's remedial it is redemptive in its purpose for that person we have to we have to remember that and notice secondly and then we'll we'll look at this uh, verses uh, six through eight or really five through eight. Not just to rescue the soul of the sinner, but to purify the church. It's to keep the church pure. So not just an individual concern or reason, but also a corporate one. Church discipline is practiced because God's people should be holy people. And so notice first the first reason, to rescue the sinner. It's found in verse 5. Again, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan. And here here it is for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now that needs to be explained a little bit (laughs) Um, because there's a lot of of confusing things. And for the sake of time, I'll just say there's really two main views here. Some have interpreted this as the the, the destruction of his flesh. It sounds like the guy's going to die, right? and uh, some have thought that's what Paul's been refers to the physical punishment or death. I don't think that's the best interpretation. I think it's better actually in context to understand flesh here in the same theological way that Paul uses in Galatians five or 17, as opposed to that, which is sinful flesh which is opposed to the Spirit, not the not the physical part of us. Um, does that make sense? Uh, the reason being, um, had he meant the physical versus the immaterial, I think he would have used the same word he just used, literally, to speak of being absent in the body and present in the Spirit. Does that make sense? Because that's actually the word for soma, and that would have been Right there in that context, for him to pick up and say, "Well, in the same way, this guy's body physically is going to be destroyed, though his soul spiritually is going to be saved," he would have used body soma instead of this word sarks flesh. He changes the word there, I think, for a reason. So, um, on top of that, I don't. I, I think it's it's. Uh, I'd have a hard time understanding how the, how Paul would, by handing this over, this man over to die at the hands of Satan. It's hard to see how that would have resulted in that second purpose clause though, right? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Like the guy would literally just die in his sin, <laughs> um, so, so all of that to, to say, I think it means, I agree with Garland when he says, it means to put the man out of the church and into the world where Satan reigns. Second Corinthians 4, four, Relinquish him to Satan's sphere of influence and let Satan work him over. Um, it's the same idea, by the way, if you're taking notes, found in 1 Timothy 1 verse 20 where he, he says, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Um, so so th- 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 this is what Paul's doing. Notice that this is allowing someone to go into a spiritual wilderness of sorts for a season to learn hard lessons for his flesh, his sinful flesh to die a difficult death. But God does that to us, doesn't he, sometimes? It's called discipline. God allows us sometimes to learn our lessons the hard way. And Paul is saying this is what he's doing with this man. But the goal, notice the reason here, is ultimately redemptive. It's for the salvation of his soul. The second purpose clause, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Listen, guys, that is ultimately why we practice church discipline. It's not because we don't love people. It's because we love them. We love their souls. We want to see them stand someday with us before Christ, having repented of their sins. and. God uses discipline sometimes to do that. The discipline process, in other words, is ultimately redemptive and not punitive. The desire is that one day this person would wake up to their dangerous condition and repent. Um, So the the first reason for church discipline is the rescue of the sinner. I've got so much stuff. <laughs> um, I think we're going to whack it off there. Um, I've gone 46 minutes already. So I'm trying to learn to discipline my time, right, in the pulpit. But I'll just blame Ben. Ben, I blame you. I blame all the prayer, the wonderful prayer that we have. They wanted, they wanted to pray more. Yeah. So let's let's just hold off on the second reason there. So we're in the middle of the reasons. Um, we'll we'll finish answering this question why because this second reason uh, it's so good and I don't want to shortchange it by speeding through it. Um, it's it's the one that I'm most excited to give you guys. You see that'll get you to come back, right? It's the one that I'm most excited to. Um to teach. So stop it there. Well, let me do this then. We it, any any questions? Or comments. Mark. Um so if we excommunicate someone from the church, yes. what if what happens if they keep coming back to the church even though there's that there's we've excommunicated them? Uh you mean uh, like in what way? Are they just... Attending services and everything. Sure. Yeah, so the, practically the way we practice that here is we actually wouldn't let them come. So we would probably meet them at the door. Some deacons would explain to them, hey, why they're, not, why they're no longer welcome to worship with us until it becomes clear that they're moving towards Repentance. Does that make sense? So that's practically what we would do uh, here. And I think the difficulty sometimes, and we'll get into all of this, right? There's a lot. So we have to get into Matthew 18. I think that's going to help us. It's going to clarify some things about even practically. Um, and there are, a few, there are a couple other passages that would be critical. But I think sometimes people, they... Um, well, they, they, they go to this passage where it says, where does it say? Uh, not even to eat with such a one. Where is that? Verse uh, 11. They, they, would go, they would go there and, and say, it's, there is a view out there that says that's just communion. And so the guy can keep coming, keep worshiping with us. Just we don't serve him communion. And I and I would actually say in the context it's stronger than that. Um, I think the other thing that people struggle with is well if we're just like in the Matthew 18 text it says well we're just to treat them as an unbeliever. Well we let unbelievers come to church and listen in and hear the gospel so why not this person if we're just treating them as an unbeliever? And the answer is Is because they've been exposed to the truth. There's a higher and greater accountability um, for them, and you. It's that's the difference, guys, between just someone who's out there in the world who doesn't know any better. Right? I mean, they're not excused, but still, there's a difference between that person and and the person who's coming willfully, continuing in their sin and saying, but I want to, I'm going to worship, and I'm fine, right? There's something extra condemnable, so to speak, about that state of um, blindness and hardness, right? It's defiance, it's pride. Uh, it's an open rebellion. Absolutely, yeah. 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 we know that there's a rebellion. Yeah, it's a willingness. It's a it's not a sin in ignorance. It's what the Old Testament des- describe as high-handed, right? Um, and by the way, that's I mean, it is taking the Lord's name in vain. Right? It's it is saying that I'm of Christ when I when I'm not Deliberately not living that way. So we'll make the rest of the people think less so. Yeah, it's a mockery, right? And we'll get into that here um in the coming weeks, but it is Yeah. So if somebody is at that point where they're just like hardened after being exposed to the truth over and over, mm-hmm. do you consider them an apostate at that point or like like Hebrews, you know. Sure. Yeah, if you run somebody through all four steps as we'll see in Matthew 18, right? The declaration is in one sense that so far as we can tell here on earth if the process has been biblical, then yes. Like that's that's what we would consider them. We Well they've already made a profession through their church membership. Mhm. Yeah, I mean Hebrews five and six would give you the language for just how severe that state is, right? And and in one sense, it's such a dangerous place to be because in so many passages, it describes this person that it's they're so. If there was if there was ever anyone who was unsavable it'd be that guy, right? Um, where they've 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 been exposed to just about everything, and it's produced nothing but the language in Hebrew six is thorns and thistles, and so it, it should be burned up. That's what they it. Christ. Yeah. Yeah, a practical apostate in one sense, right? That's kind of what we would consider them, it, which which, which actually is probably more the case than um, in all those warning passages. It, it's, it, it has so much to do with, yes, there certainly are categories of people who would then just go back on their confession and just say, nope, that was ridiculous. I don't know what I was thinking but more often you're going to see warnings against people who would hold to, to uh, a form of godliness but deny its power, right, by their lives. So practical. Any other questions? Because I hope you see, even as we walk through this series, that how, how relevant like this topic is and how... And in, even in God's providence, like how significant, right? Right after this, we've been focusing on discipleship and then the Great Commission. You know that this is part of body life, and even as we'll see in Matthew eighteen, and even as I've said before, church discipline should always be going on, um, and as sober, mind, like as sobering and as serious and as Significant as all this might be and scary even, I want you to walk away from our time focusing on this topic thinking, man, what a grace in my life for this to be commanded of those around me. And, uh, you know, the sweet thing about church discipline, the process is that it stops when repentance happens. Just like that. So steps one and two, look, it's going to be happening all the time. Um, so help one another, guys. Do church discipline. <laughs> um, it's good. It's a good thing. Okay. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this study, and Lord, we uh, we acknowledge just that there's so many uncomfortable truths in Scripture, and uh, this is certainly one of them but yet we know and confess that it is for our good and it is for your glory. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to live lives that are worthy of this calling. Uh, May we not be guilty of taking your name in vain, of having a false profession, of taking on our lips praises to You while with our lives denying Christ practically. Lord, show us, even expose in us areas of sin where we need to be sanctified and grow us. And Father, give us the courage to practice this for one another.